intentionally brought to you by... This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner. And today we interview two dating app founders for our Valentine's Day special. I know we're a little late, but it's always a good time to think about those you love. So let's talk about dating. Dating apps were popular before, but now they are basically essential because COVID has shifted everything, including the dating game online. But perhaps this is for the better. A study coming from Match.com found that 69% of users reported having more open and honest interactions because of online dating. So we're going to have some open, honest interactions with some of the founders behind this online dating world and discover who they are and why they got started. One story will follow Danny Fankhauser, someone who initially let religion lead her dating life. But after years of exploring herself, she recognized the areas where modern dating falls short. So it's called the paradox of choice. If you were given 12 flavors of jam for your toast versus someone else who's given four flavors. The person given four is gonna choose a lot easier and be a lot happier. And now she's trying to revolutionize the field. As we forge ahead into Danny's story, we'll explore the parallels between her journey to XO and Natalie's to Newit. Natalie Frangi has an incredibly interesting story. She fought her way from Lebanon to Texas to pursue a career in chemistry, and along the way faced countless challenges and was even held up at gunpoint. He grabs me, he pushes me on the ground, and he starts searching my pockets, and he leaves the gun next to me on my right side. I'm looking at the gun and I'm thinking like, should I pick it up? Should I not pick it up? All of this served to strengthen her resolve, and a tumultuous career would eventually lead her to found Newit a company with the mission to find intimate connections across the stars. So without further ado, we bring you Natalie Frangi for Act One, The Zodiac Shipper. I was born in Texas. My dad is a a doctor, a cardiologist, and my mom is a pharmacist. When my dad finished his residency in Florida, we moved back to Houston. He decided he wanted, as a doctor, to help people in Lebanon because it was going through a civil war. And he uprooted the whole family and we moved to Lebanon. The war has lasted 12 months. It has ruined a country and destroyed a nation. The civil war started in 1975. I do remember also the moment that I boarded the plane in Houston. I remember my grandma and my aunts crying. I didn't understand why, because we had been flying. I used to go to Greece to see my grandpa. I used to fly to Egypt to see my Italian grandmother. And it wasn't until, you know, we landed to to Lebanon. I remember the first night sleeping. It was cold and having no electricity because the electricity kept cutting cutting out. And it was just, you know, different because you went from a first, first world country to a country where it's just under war. You know, it was just torn apart. We moved to suburban area because we were living in the city. And this is where I remember more seeing my dad, you know, treating patients. Sometimes because patients didn't have the means to pay, they would come and they would bring us apples or, or eggs. And sometimes coming to my mom, you know, asking for assistance and her being a pharmacist, she would make some medicine for them. And having seen that, you know, it's something that I aspired. I wanted to like, you know, become like my parents, see them, you know, help people. And there was one incident that stayed with me because I remember how much my dad helping people actually played a role. I was coming back from the beach with my mom 
and I was then nine years old. And we get stopped by a Syrian checkpoint because at that time we were occupied by the Syrian government. Syrian soldiers were constantly harassing women. We stopped, rolled down the window. And he looks at her, he's like, you know what? I want your daughter. And she's, and she's like, what do you mean you want? He's like, I want to marry her. And she said, but she's too young. He's like, no, she's not young. I want her, I want to bring her, let her come down off the car right now. And she said, but she's nine years old. She hasn't even started her cycle. He said, in that case, you know, when she's of age, you bring her to me. And she said, yes, 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 of course. Just enough so she can pass the checkpoint. She goes home and she tells my dad. And it happened that my dad was treating a big general, a Syrian general, whose you know, daughter had been through a fire and he had heart issues. And if it wasn't for the fact that he was treating the Syrian general, he, as soon as he talked to him, called up and made sure that this soldier was actually taken away from his checkpoint. And I remember that incident, how if it weren't for the fact that my dad had helped people and had treated, then this situation would have turned completely sour. To be honest, as a young child, because you don't understand, you just you know, see this experience and you don't realize that it registers with you until a later stage. Even if Natalie couldn't completely understand her situation, growing up in such an environment had to be tough. While many of her relatives fled from the war, her immediate family ran towards the turmoil. Suddenly, she was immersed in chaos stemming from decades upon decades of religious and political tensions between Muslims and Christians. For Natalie's parents to have made such a choice, to sacrifice one's first world luxuries in the name of justice and human rights, seems impossibly altruistic. And seeing bravery in the face of such turbulence would instill in Natalie a lasting sense of fearlessness and independence. Her upbringing not only affected her immediate response to this situation, but it also affected how she thought about long-term planning. It taught her to prioritize her education and to be prudent about her future. It was very important in, in my family, especially with my mom, that I always excelled at school. I was always, unfortunately, the second because Arabic was not my strongest language. And she would always tell me, like, I want you to be the first. I want you to be the first. You need to be the first. <laughs> and although I was second in class, it wasn't enough. And although I was excelling, I was, you know, an athlete. I was playing basketball. I was playing volleyball. That wasn't important. What was important was my education. So with that, there was no room for failing. There was no room to be less because she said, your, your mom's a pharmacist, your dad is a, is a doctor, you, you, you have the capability to always be an A student. Remember one day I had gone with my mom to a toy store and mind you that my mom would never get us a gift unless we were good students. There was an occasion, let's say we had, you know, it was our birthday, it was Christmas. So there was always a reason. She said, you worked hard, you got compensated. I remember seeing a chemistry set and it was the first time that she actually brought me the chemistry set for no reason. And she sat with me and we started doing experiments together. I used to watch and mesmerize watching my parents talk about, you know, the, the, the cases to the point that I, I would know like, OK, you know, you have this. That means it's, you need to take that, that medicine. I learned that at young age just by listening to my parents and then seeing them helping people is something that I wanted to do. So I started my path in pharmacy school. I said, I'll go to pharmacy school. Once I finish, then I'll go to medical school. So this is what, ha what happened. I, I went to Lebanese American University. I started pharmacy, and then my dad realized that they might not be able to get the accreditation from the American University. So that means if I graduated from there, I would not be able to work in the U.S. So he said, since there's a possibility that they might not get it, I suggest best to go to the U.S. and continue your education there. 
population is 4 million, it felt like I was living in a village. Like everybody knew me, everybody knew everybody. So I, was, I didn't have room for my own experiences, for me to, you know, to fall and get up and say, okay, this, this is my, my journey, this is my path. Everywhere I went, everybody knew me because they knew my doctor. So I was always under the eyes of people. And I couldn't do anything wrong because if I did, immediately my parents knew and then they would, would, would scold me. I felt like, you know, I wanted to broaden my horizon. I mean, it's in a place where you have to maintain yourself in a certain manner. For example, I couldn't dress in a certain way. You know, I had to be very, you know, kind of feminine. If I went to university, I was going to university wearing heels and putting makeup. And I was just such a kind of tomboy because I was playing basketball at university. And it felt like, oh, you know, you're not dressed so feminine or I was driving too fast. One day I was caught uh, street racing. Wait, you were street racing? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, how did that happen? Well, you know, in Lebanon, whenever they see, you know, a girl driving fast and I had a sports car, it was like, okay, it was a challenge. And you're talking about Lebanon that had just been out of a war and everything was, we, there were no traffic lights. So you, it was kind of free roaming. We didn't have speed limits. And so every day going to university, I was always late. I was doing 160 kilometers, about like 120 miles approximately. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, they were constantly, we were constantly racing to see who would make it to university before or who would like, you know, on the way back from university going to school, we would race. So it was always this kind of, you know, adrenaline rush. And so, you know, they, 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 they would find out and, you know, they would take the car from me. And so I had to find ways to get to university with friends or have them drop me, which wasn't very nice having your family, your dad drop you to university. So, yeah, I mean, some of the experiences that, you know, I wanted to have them without, without actually really disappointing my family. Because they wouldn't understand. You had to be, you know, you know the, the ideal, what people expect you. Because it's not that I was, like I said, I wasn't only raised by my family. I was raised by society. And if you acted in a different way that society didn't expect you, that means you were not being right. Yeah, essentially you wanted freedom. Yes, like, of expression. And freedom from the gaze of mm-hmm. that society and the judgment of that society. Exactly. When you went to University of Houston, what did you find? I experienced all cultures, let's, you know, from, from Vietnamese to Indian to Latin American to, you know, uh, to African, African-Americans. You know, it was just a, a melting pot of, of different cultures. You know, the only thing that I had experienced in Lebanon were the difference in religion. So being in the U.S., it's just like, okay, I, I, could, I could be myself. If I wanted to be with a group of emo, I could be with a group of emo. <laughs> you know? So whoever I chose to be, I could be, and I could experience myself through that. And this is what being in, in Houston, being in the U.S. helped me. You know, I, I started, I went there and I started going through pharmacy school. And then I realized I didn't like the whole pharmacy program because it was different from the European. I didn't like the whole big pharma. And I decided to move away from pharmacy and go into chemistry. Pour water into any solid container and it will take the shape of that container. Cultural and societal shifts happen, but they tend to happen slowly. Because of this, Natalie always felt constrained by the norms she perceived, like water being constrained by a glass. But Houston gave her the opportunity to expand herself freely and figure out her path without fear of repercussions from society and her parents. Even in her advanced studies, Natalie's focused but free-flowing attitude is what helped her grow. But she would soon be met with a forceful reminder that not every place in the world is as progressive as the U.S.
after uh, I graduated, I decided, okay, I said, let me just take, take a, at least a year off because I wanted to travel. And I started researching and I found a position which was Marie Curie Fellowship here in, in Greece. And, and I applied for it. So two months into, into the job, I started noticing certain behavior that I wasn't very happy with. It was during a, a conference that we had, and as I was walking back to my room, two senior researchers, they, they, were, they were walking me. They kind of exchange looks. The, the Greek guy walks me to my room. So we continue talking about science. He started telling me about, you know, what are the things that need to be done pertaining to the lab and whatnot. I tell him, thank you. I let him be. And I, I, and I go into, into my room. I guess this chain of event, he must have understood it differently. I started experiencing like sexual connotation coming out of it. Then, you know, he sends me an in, in, in email, tells me like, you know, I, I need to, to meet with you. I go in and he's like, he starts making passes at me. It was the first time that I'm experienced. I didn't know how to, how to deal with it. I mean, at this point, I'm thinking like, did I do something? Did I say something that he, he took it upon himself to, 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 to think that there's something more? And this is when I, I kind of stopped and I said, you've, you've gotten the wrong message here. He starts getting like really upset. And he says, I don't understand. Are you, are you, you know, are you, you're using me? You're taking advantage. And I'm like, whoa, whoa. And so after that incident, things started deteriorating there. You know, I started kind of constantly being, you know, subliminally bullied. Every time I did something, there was some sort of attack. And he tells me, he's like, listen, uh, your career is dependent on me. You're still, you're, you're still dependent on my reference letter. And I said, what are you trying? Are you trying to blackmail me here? He's like, no, I'm just letting you know. So basically, like, just so... I'm clear, you rejected his advances, and then he tried to blackmail you. Yes. So when, when this happened, I said, I'm not going to allow him to dictate and to blackmail me. You know, I've been through war. I've been, you know, I've been held at gunpoint. And yet having somebody like that is not, a, it's not going to dictate. And I said, I will continue. And my contract was for three years. I will continue. I will publish papers and I will continue with my, with my path, regardless of the fact if he's, I'm going to be dependent on his reference letter, I will find my way. And then one day I had a pipe uh, break in my lab and one of the, the master students, she sees me, she's like, you know, let me help you. The next day, her and I started developing a cough. I was, I went to get a checkup and I was diagnosed with chemical pneumonia. And I started seeing, you know, what ways I can find in order to, to be able to certify, to at least have somebody go check the lab to make sure or to do an inspection. I give them a call, Ministry of Health. I go visit them and I tell them my story. So you go meet with your colleagues about this and what happens? They go and they, they inspect. And of course, it was in violation. And immediately, they suspect that it was me. So when I go to, to have a meeting with them, they go on an attack mode. And they start threatening me and telling me that, you know, if you, did, you, did you send and if this is it, we're going we're gonna, to, you know, go after you. I told them, tell them, you know what, this is unprofessional from you. Okay, and I'm not going to subject myself to this anymore. And I leave. I go speak with a lawyer and the lawyer tells me, you do have your right, you know, because 
you know, this is not the first time that, you know, it's well known that in this culture, there is a bit of, you know, there is sexual harassment, but unfortunately it's the Greek system. And the only thing that it's going to do is you're going to constantly face, you know, hardship and attacks, you know, and, and with that, I realized there's nothing I can do. All my work that I had done, I couldn't get it published. So for three years, all went, it felt like it all went in vain. Take any chemistry class, and you'll learn that mixing the wrong chemicals could result in something harmful, if not deadly. Here, Natalie had to mix with others in a society where men not only held more power, but could also suffer virtually no repercussions for their actions. For reference, it was only in 2006 when sexual harassment was deemed a legal crime in Greece. As the months pass, the standoff intensified between those in positions of authority and people like Natalie, who couldn't tolerate that behavior. After the spill, it seemed Natalie had no cards left to play. So much of her hard work had just been dumped down the drain. With nowhere to go, where could Natalie turn? So one of the things that I guess this attributes to my upbringing is that we're like Phoenix. Lebanon has been destroyed seven or eight times and it keeps rising. You know, so one of the things that, you know, you, you fall on the floor, you scrape your knees, you brush it off, you get up and you continue. And this way I decided, you know what, since this door has closed, I will start a new venture. In 2012, I was sitting with my partner with a group of friends, and one of the friends was an aspiring astrologer. He was studying to become an astrologer. So he would sit and give readings to his friend as a practice. So he said, you know what, let me let me give you a natal chart reading. And and by then, I, what I knew about astrology was sun sign and rising sign. So it, it, it is part of, you know, the, the Greek culture, the, the, you know, the, the Lebanese culture. You know, I grew up, my mom always asking us, oh, what's your sun sign? What's your rising sign? You're this, you're that. So when, when, this, when this astrologer took my birthday and, and my hour and he got this whole chart, I was like, oh, wow. It held so many true aspects of my personality, even certain events that had happened. It's almost like going to a psychologist who's telling you a few points about yourself. You realize the things that you're doing. Like, okay, you know what? These are the things that I'm doing and probably I can work at them and become a better, better person. So at this point, we're just like, okay, there's much, like I said, there's much more to astrology than I thought. So my brother and his friend were sitting together. He tells me, it's like, how do you feel about if we started like, you know, a, a dating astrology? I'm like, this is a great project. I say, it's, it's a challenge. And it'd be interesting to embark on this new project. And, I, and I'm the type of person that I love challenges. And the one thing also furthermore that made me believe in the project was that I realized all of the dating apps had something similar. You didn't get to know much about the person, apart from the fact, a picture, to what the person put about themselves. But you never got to know more about the person. And one thing that astrology does is that you get an understanding of them. So, so immediately there's this kind of feel, a sense of familiarity. And you, it's, it's also a subject to discuss and to open up. And it said, okay, you know, it, 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 then it held even more weight, knowing that this project could succeed. There was a demand for it. And, and knowing that the new millennials as well as Generation D, they're getting more in touch with astrology again, because in times where there's a lot of uncertainty, kind of knowing the future to make yourself feel better just because there's so much uncertainty that's going on around. Creating an app to help people find love based on astrology was a sharp pivot away from doing research in chemistry. 
or we could put it a different way. The chemistry she was now focusing on was a very different type of chemistry. But you can see that the ashes of Natalie's previous life laid out fertile ground to grow something completely new, but still relevant to her experience. She was looking to create a space where people could be themselves with a little bit of guidance. Whether or not astrology can be accepted as truth is one thing, but what I know to be true is that this seems to be a way more engaging conversation starter than, hey. And so how did you begin to start working on this project? You know, as a scientist, I always have doubts. But this here was just like, okay, you know what? We've done our market research. We see there's a demand for it. But still, it was astrology. And there were a lot of skeptics out there. By then, there were already about 2,000 dating apps. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's some tough competition. Exactly. Exactly. That fear is like, what if? What if, you know? We don't make it. What if people don't want it? Building an app is not cheap. So there was all this kind of cloud hovering above my head. When we released, unfortunately, this is lack of experience, we released in an open market, meaning like it was launched everywhere. Anybody, anywhere in the world, they could access it. Most dating apps, what they do is they localize. Now, one of the things that we wanted to do is I didn't want to have a dating app where you actually are looking just for people who are in your vicinity. Because the aspect of the the astrology and the dating app is it goes back to finding the right person or what a lot of people like to call soulmates. And your soulmate might not be somebody in your vicinity. It might be somebody who might be across Atlantic. And it wasn't just about also dating because we also have friendship. We had business as well. So we wanted to include all the dynamics of a relationship. But of course, you know, when you do that, then the pool of people coming into the app is very scattered. However, we actually got a lot of interesting stories from people who have met distance away, finding themselves to be the right match and ended up getting married. What were some of the the first stories that you heard that made you realize, oh, like this actually is working? We were not getting it directly. It was through Twitter or some of the feedback that they were giving us. They had stories from people telling us like, you know, I met this person on your app. They were 1,500 miles away from me. We met one another and we found out to be a perfect match and we're engaged. And now we're getting married. And then hearing from them later that we're still married. I'd like to talk about like how you started to get a little bit more steam. You had some hype on TikTok. Because the app is complex and astrology has so much to give, we were you know, trying to grow it steadily. It takes time for people to know. We were doing our, our marketing. And of course, you know, with dating apps, there's always a high churn rate. And then in May, Gloriana puts a TikTok about us. We got at that moment a big <laughs> doubt, big interest. She, she actually posted about the fact that we have the ability of hiding from straight people. And we are inclusive of, you know, different gender and different orientation. And people started watching a video and sharing, and we started getting downloads. And we got so much traffic that it started creating a hit on our server. When you saw that, were you like, wait, like, we have something. We have something that's working. We knew we had something because we were constantly getting downloads. We were getting reviews. And then Gloriana happened, the TikTok movie, all our hard work validated where is new it now and what do you want the future to look like there's been some traction as every entrepreneur or person who creates you want to see whatever you create make it succeed and you put all your heart and your effort in it 
even if there are days that you know we feel like you know things might not work out we wake up the next day and say you know what no we will make it and so what i would like is to be able to get more stories to receive messages or this email from people that they've met the person that they you know they fell in love with even if it's across country having that ability to meet that one person that you feel you match just because astrology helps you give you an understanding of who you are of how they are of how the relationship will be the weaknesses the strength how to work to overcome your weaknesses to make the relationship last i love that When Natalie worked in STEM, success was informed by hard data. As she grew this app, download data was definitely something to be monitored, but it seems that fulfillment came from her users' stories. Her app helps connect people across continents, and this is because she focuses on what her user base wants. It could be a sense of security stemming from astrology or inclusivity found nowhere else. Regardless, the essential philosophy that guides both her app and her life is the same. No matter what today is like, the future always holds promise. To finish off, could you give me a more detailed version of that story from Belgium? So the girl, her name is Sarah. She's, I believe, from California. And Kevin is in Belgium. And they met about two years ago on Know It. And they started meeting one another. They were supposed to get married this year, but because of COVID, the borders were closed. So she got a permission from the Belgium embassy to be able to fly to the U.S. to go see him. And she spent there two months with him. They got engaged. And then she, of course, had to go back to California. This is what we've had from her about like a month ago. Uh, but she promised that she will keep in touch and tell us more of her stories. That's amazing. And you guys facilitated that. That must feel incredible that you are creating those kinds of relationships. This is what matters. Just keeping your dating pool to the people just around you. It's not, I mean, you never know the right person you're going to meet. And having that ability to meet across different continents, different culture, and having astrology give you an understanding of how the relationship will be. Knowing that, you know, you already get, you get a, a familiarity once you look at the chart, once you look at their signs. You immediately jump from, okay, let's have a small talk to, okay, you know, you're this, you're that. I, you know, I, immediately there's this kind of a knowingness that happens with astrology. What it is, is for people to find their person, because at the end of the day, with everything that we go through, whether our successes or our failures, we always want somebody to share it with. And this is what's most important. At the end of the day, it's all about love. Most of us see dating apps as a way to kill time in the short term and as a fun way to meet people nearby. But Natalie showed us that something that might seem superficial can be life-changing for people. She gave people confidence in their ability to build relationships despite borders or physical distance. And after all that Natalie went through and witnessed during her life, it seems that the resounding message is that love is essential, that it's the glue that holds us together. And I think this is a message worth remembering. Along with the usual suspects that lead to entrepreneurial success, like ambition, creativity, and hard work, I think that love and kindness should be added to that list. And it's not because I'm trying to promote some woo-woo spirituality or some kind of kumbaya circle. It's because love and kindness lead to empathy. And if you can have empathy for your users and customers, you can better serve them. And I think that's what is at the core of Natalie's philosophy. But let's take a break from Natalie and dive into another story, one defined by risk-taking and self-discovery. It's about Danny Fankhauser, founder of Exo a dating app created in order to encourage the lighthearted side of discovering love. 
This is Act Two. Keep score, Mia Moore. I grew up going to church on Sundays and then youth group on, you know, it was probably Wednesday nights. You know, Christianity, especially evangelical Christianity, plays on identity a lot. I was exposed to a lot of ideas around dating. From early on, I would get books for my for my birthday, for Christmas, that were, you know, about how Christians should date, which, like everything else, was different than how other people could date. Uh, there was a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye that everyone read. And at the time, I really enjoyed it. And that book was all about rejecting dating for courtship. So never, not holding hands, not being alone in a room together, taking it slow. The trend at the time was, you know, the promise ring to, you know, say that I'm not going to have sex until I'm married. Al, let's have sex. Uh, no pig. It was almost like the more things that you wait to do until you're married, the better your marriage will be, but also the better your sex will be inside marriage. That was the message that I got growing up. It was sort of like, well, why date unless we're thinking about getting married? The idea of receiving books on Christian dating or shopping for a promise ring may seem foreign to many of us and perhaps even a bit strange, but it is a familiar experience for those who grew up in deeply Christian communities. Christianity was a fundamental aspect of Danny's life, and at times it was an enclosed box, creating sturdy guardrails that made the exploration of other ideas challenging. Like Natalie, who grew up in Lebanon and felt the limitations of societal expectation, Danny's involvement in the church created rigid structures to abide by. Dating books provided a code of conduct, imposing pressure upon a curious teenager who was just trying to learn about how to navigate the world of relationships. These limitations spurred a yearning for novelty. She wanted to grow beyond the walls that confined her. So when I was in college, my Christian college, which was Nazarene, the denomination, would do these summer trips. And it was called Love Works. And we would connect with churches in different countries. So I went to Liberia. And this was in 2007, not that many years after um, a very long civil war there had ended. And it was the first group that, that my church had sent there in a long time. It began with the Selica, a rebel coalition that sought to topple the corrupt government. They recruited foreign fighters, and they began to loot, burn, and murder their way across the country to seize power. This type of trip is, is very common for evangelicals, and often people come back and they say, oh, I, I didn't realize what it was like in other places. I'm so grateful for what I have. But I remember on that trip, some of the, the girls uh, who maybe were in high school or about our age, they ask us, oh, is it, is it fun living in the U.S.? And I mean, I didn't, I didn't even know how to respond to that. Like they, they live off a dirt road. They might not have a TV. Like how, how do you explain like what our life is like compared to theirs? But they seemed very content. And so I get back, I look around my room and all these like, you know, objects that I own, all these clothes that I, that I barely wear. And I just felt really frustrated and sort of disgusted with my lifestyle. Why do I need all these things? And I would turn on the water to brush my teeth and just see all of this very clean water going down the drain as I'm getting my, tooth, my toothbrush wet. 
And I'm thinking of like when we stayed there, someone would pump water and then carry it upstairs so that we could take bucket showers. Someone could have such such a different lifestyle and have the same access to that feeling of being content. I became more conscious in terms of what I would buy. I think it also wore away sort of my worldview. You know, when you, when you grow up in a certain place, there's a lot of norms that you just accept. I think seeing a very different place made me question things that I had accepted previously and began to kind of like look for the other, the other side of the story. I think an even bigger experience for me was actually the summer before that I was an intern in Hawaii and I worked for a church there. I was in charge of the youth group. And at one point um, during my time there, there was a misunderstanding between myself and the pastor where uh, he wanted to have a meeting with, with some of the students' parents before, um, before a trip. And I knew that the parents were gone that day. They hadn't made it to church. Their kids were there, but the parents weren't there. So he ends up calling me in after church and basically, you know, ask, ask me a question. I start to answer. He interrupts me and says, no, that's not what happened. You, you broke my authority. Um, and then I just start crying and he yells at me for 40 minutes. After that, went on a long drive, prayed a lot. And at that point, I had always seen someone who was a pastor as God's authority. But at this point, it really opened me up to question whether or not someone who was in church authority um, truly had access to something that I didn't. And then that empowered me as I worked through it to begin to question what I had been presented by the church and seeing that different churches believe different things and, and even the different religions believe different things. Removing the person from the pedestal was a life-altering moment in Danny's relationship with the church. And it paved a way for her to seek life experience outside of it. With the exhilarating rush of taking off, Danny left for Liberia, Africa. The simple necessities of Liberia contrasted against the reckless waste of American consumerism. The average American family can waste 9,400 gallons of water annually from leaking faucets alone. Water that in Liberia requires hand pumping and a person to carry it. Danny's reevaluation of her life and its comforts, along with the realization that other belief systems hold the same validity as her own, untethered her from the religious limitations she had been familiar with for so long. New doors of perception had opened, and she was ready to walk through them. I keep coming back to dating just because it seems like with this most recent endeavor, like that's really the problem that you're trying to tackle. So in the context of these realizations, in grad school, you experimented with online dating, which seems to be a turnaround from the books you were reading initially about courting. What did that signify? So I got back to California. I did grad school in Chicago. I, I moved back with my parents to sort of figure out my next move. And that, that's when I first got into OkCupid. Dating has changed. It's okay to be turned on by a person before you meet in person. However you choose to date, it's okay. OkCupid. 
So that was the first dating site that I used. And at that point, I just, I just really hadn't dated. And I was, I was in my early 20s. And I couldn't tell myself that I had gone on a first date before. So I, I think after grad school was when I started to feel like I need to take this into my own hands and I need to be more of an active participant. I, I think it was one of the first points where I started to see that, um, that there was more that needed to go into that than just meeting the first person, getting married and having a perfect relationship. There was something about dating people who weren't perfect for you, but that you would learn something about yourself through them. And so I, I found dating sites to be something that would let me play a more active role because I, I don't think I would have been comfortable just approaching someone and asking them out or asking for their phone number. So it let me play a more active role and, and also let me sort of um, gauge people based on maybe their beliefs. Because at the time I was still looking to date other Christians and uh, through dating sites you could sort of um, filter based on, on their profile and the different things that they mentioned being interested in. It seems like what you were looking for was an imperfect person or imperfect people that could teach you about yourself. So did you find what you were looking for? I mean, I, I think that's such a, an important definition of dating in that it's that's the question. Is it about finding the right person as soon as possible? Or is it about having an experience that teaches you about yourself and teaches you about what type of person you should be with and want to be with? And what kind of person you want to be? I mean, I've, I've gone on so many dates with people who were a terrible match. <laughs> some of them I might have learned something from. And some of them I might have thought was a, were a great match until I found out that they weren't. And now I know what qualities matter and what qualities don't matter. This is a unique and insightful approach to dating. To explore others in order to discover more about yourself and who you are. It's also an approach that ran counterintuitive to what Danny had been taught growing up in the Christian faith. The idea that there's some perfect partner that exists somewhere in the world, and that person will just happen to appear. The constraints of her religious community had prevented the simple explorations of teenage dating, so following grad school, she felt way behind in comparison to those around her. Websites like OkCupid provided imperfect matches, but interactions that she still deemed valuable. It wasn't about manufacturing the perfect fairy tale. It was about unique exchanges with other people that allowed her to learn more about herself. And it was also about the concept of exploring various options to determine what do I actually like? What's right for me? Dating a person allows you to see more of yourself. I think jobs can have that same kind of effect. To what led you to the decision that you wanted to create something yourself. Yeah, so I haven't had a very traditional career. When I talk to people about career advice, like one of the things that I feel like I bring up a lot is that that it is similar to dating where you have to you have to be very brave to leave something that's not working to find what will work. So I, I finished my business marketing degree at, you know, the, like the peak of the Great Recession. 
no one was hiring. It was a terrible time. But I also realized I didn't really want to be sort of, I had done a, a mortgage firm internship. I didn't really want to be just sitting behind a desk during like the most beautiful part of the day when the sun is out. Um, and I love writing. So I thought I'll go to school for journalism. So I did that, finished that right around the time that um, news organizations, business models were failing because everything was moving online. <laughs> So great timing, uh, so great, great timing. Um, my first job was at a print magazine and it was in Laguna Beach. And I got to take my friends to restaurants for comped meals so I could write about the restaurant and a lot of other cool things. Um, but it, it wasn't it didn't promise a lot of career growth. It, it would be the same job, you know, indefinitely. So basically, like this was uh, something that worked in the short term, but you couldn't see like a definitive future with. No. Yeah. And and especially, um, I mean, just financially, I had student loans and I, I couldn't afford to keep working there. So that's when I got my first taste of startups. Um, a friend of a friend had started a mobile app for reading news um, and was looking for someone with journalism experience. So that was called Flood. They were in San Diego, which I had done college there. So I moved back down um, from Orange County and, um, and I worked there for about 11 months. I knew that we were running out of money for, for at least the last six months. And I remember thinking, am I just gonna show up to work one day and find out I don't have a job? So that was my first real taste of what it's like to, to have raised seed funding. And all the insecurity that comes along with that. Yeah, you you are working knowing that you have to hit certain metrics and then you have to raise money again. And that's the game. So not having a job suddenly and having some pretty good journalism experience, um, I decided to move to New York. So that's, that's how I first moved to New York. And it actually ended up being such a perfect blend of experience to get a job at Mashable, um, which at the time covered startups, um, but working in the branded content department. So that was actually developing a new revenue stream for news organizations. So I think the way, the timing that I graduated really taught me that, um, that I needed to just pick up skills wherever I could and you know be ready, be ready to change. When I needed to. Danny used the same skills she had uncovered through dating as a tool to help her navigate career opportunities. Startups are about dipping toes into the unknown, just like sending a message to a person you've never met. So though her time at Flood ultimately resulted in her being jobless, it freed her from any West Coast commitments and redirected her across the continent where she actively sought out new experiences to learn and evolve. It's worth recognizing the leap of faith that both Danny and Natalie took as they moved away from home and how this changed the entire trajectory of each of their lives. As Danny settled into a stable job, she wanted to experiment with her ideas, which led to the birth of a passion project. Read this next. So I was at Mashable, and I think the seed of it really came around back when I was at, at Flood at the startup because it was, it was my first time really understanding what a startup was and, and that you could start something from nothing in that way. 
As someone who's an aspiring writer, I kind of saw how bookstores had basically become Amazon. And so I, I really wanted to recreate that experience that I had growing up, being in like this very immersive and visual environment in order to pick out something to read. So I started working on it on the side. So after getting laid off from the startup that ran out of money, I didn't trust anyone else to have my back. A job was a job, but ultimately I was the one that had to make sure that I had financial security. Whatever earning potential that I have was gonna come from myself. And I couldn't de depend on a company to be financially successful and give me a raise when I needed a raise and so on. But I felt like if I was in charge, then I could create that for myself. Do you see a, a paradox is probably not the right word, but like, a startup is probably one of the most financially insecure moves that one could make, yet you were looking to it for that financial security. It seems maybe that you just trust your ability to create that earning potential for yourself. Yeah, I read a lot of essays by people who have startups who work kind of in that realm. And I think it was Paul Graham who wrote something like this, but it was basically that you know, I'd rather work 10 times as hard and get 10x the outcome. And I think that appeals to me because I, I know that I have that sort of resilience and, abil and ability to work very hard. Can you talk to me about your move towards Kickstarter? Kickstarter was great for us because it gave us not just funding to build the app, but also your early users which in our case were, you know, beta users are, are just as valuable because you have to have someone use it so you know how to make changes. You raised $25,000 for it, right? Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about the moment where you realized you hit that goal and what your thoughts about this business were and what it could be in that moment? I mean, it, it wasn't that much of a moment for us just because now there was so much to do. The funding isn't the exciting part when you're an entrepreneur because the funding means that you have to start working. What was the exciting part for you? The exciting part for me with Read This Next was really seeing the app in the app store, that it was the experience that I had imagined it being, like it, that it felt like walking around a bookstore when you move from page to page. And I think also when the app store chose to feature us, of course that was like thousands of new users suddenly, but also just that outside validation that we had done something that was worthwhile. So it seemed like it was gaining traction. You had all these new users from the app store, but it wasn't like working to the point where you needed it to. When did you start to have those feelings where it's like, oh, this might not work? There's failure, there's success, but there's so much in between that. And it wasn't like going viral. It wasn't like every person who signed up was inviting five other people. And so you have something good happen, you get some press, you get a positive review. It's so hard to know when to be done because I always had other ideas of, oh, I could change this feature, I could add this thing. And that sort of never ends. Um, but I think just the fact that it wasn't like a runaway success right away, sort of like was the first indicator of like, this might not work. 
I mean, there was sort of, there was sort of the phase where I quit working on it. And then the phase where I actually like pulled it from the app store, which was maybe two years after that. The startup is like the most risky thing. And I was looking to it for stability uh, and security when it was probably the, the least likely to make me uh, actually financially stable. I looked back on buying the, the domain name Read This Next, which was $2,000 at the point when I was paying off student loans and really did not have that extra money and thought, did I just waste two or three years of my life and a lot of money? But I knew that I didn't because I, I had moved to San Francisco with the idea of being around more people who were, who were starting companies and sort of the ecosystem there and eventually applying for jobs. And the people I interviewed with were like, oh, she, she started a startup, let's hire her. They gave me that feedback, that the fact I had worked on something myself put me like on top of the pile. Because in the interviews, I could talk about this experience I had with, you know, I was applying for a content marketing role, but I could talk about product development and working with developers overseas. So when it comes down to it, it's not really about whether the startup makes it or not it's like whether you like learn something yeah it's like if you look at my linkedin so many things overlap and i could have been in the workforce for five years but i had 10 years of experience because i was doing two different things the intensity of founding a startup equipped danny with experience that as she said placed her resume on top of the pile Along the way, she had been securing bits and pieces of information to enhance her product knowledge, but she was also expanding the trust she had in her abilities and capacity to succeed. She didn't want to wait for a corporation to place restrictions on how much she could make in a week. She wanted the freedom to work without limits and reap the benefits from the effort she poured in. But when she shut down Read This Next, her creativity surged. What were the first ideas that you maybe really planted to develop your own dating app? Yeah, I don't, it's such a funny thing. I don't think, despite using OkCupid when it was pretty new, um, when Tinder came out, I, I remember my friend telling me about it. I wrote about it for Mashable. So I'd sort of seen dating apps both as a journalist and a user for many years. And I was single and I was very fatigued with dating apps. They're all very similar with like maybe one twist. And so a friend and I would joke about like innovating dating apps by going back to meeting people in person. Uh, and we would try we would try to go to bars and it's like people have forgotten how to approach someone at a bar. Come on, let's go back to my place. I'll make you a quesadilla. So I knew that there was a lot of frustration with the space. So the idea was to be more than just an app, but a different approach to dating, where it's not about the outcome. It's not about trying to get a hookup or trying to get a serious re relationship, but really about the experience. I think our whole thesis is that games do that. There's a very natural back and forth, so you don't have to come up with this awkward pickup line. And... You're not thinking about, oh, how am I presented? Am I doing this right? But you're thinking about like the game. And that puts you in a better place to be playful, to have your sense of humor really show. And then you're more likely to have a genuine connection. What are some of the milestones that you are most proud of since its inception, which was rather recent, right? It launched 
earlier this year, correct? Yeah, so we launched in May and around September, we crossed 100,000 users. Yeah, that was our biggest milestone so far. And um, we launched with five games and now we have seven. So we're continuing to add more games. But really the, the sort of North Star that we look at is um, how many conversations people are having and constantly optimizing towards that. So we look at like which games are driving the most conversations and even which game prompts are driving the most conversations. I mean, I think our hypothesis was that the fatigue people are having on dating apps right now is directly tied to the fact that they're sort of dehumanizing themselves and others. So they're they're treating others like if you're shopping for a car, like you're just flicking through. I slide down when I see the one I like. If she does the same, we get to chat. Oh, oh, slide up, slide up! Now, now we're talking. talking. Should I slide down? No, dude, you need to check out the market before you park it. You know, you're you're picking out the height that you want, the too ethnicity tall, that you want, small, and all of these different size. search terms. And, and I think, you know, you, feel dehumanized because you you send out a very interesting message and then the person doesn't respond. Aren't they gonna feel bad being rejected? Meh, it's all virtual, no one actually gets hurt. So there's just this constant like numbers game and it's sort of a competition about like who can care less about the other person. What we're trying to do is create an experience where you have fun. And so it's like, you know, spending an hour playing mobile games, you have a good time, you don't feel like that time was wasted if you don't get a certain thing out of it. But we also feel like that addresses that fatigue that people feel. When you play a game, it's not like you're sort of performing for the other person, but you're just sort of interacting. But at least you know that, that it's not like a deadline, that there's someone on the other side and that you're having this human interaction, which is very different than, than I think what existing dating apps offer to people. EXO was a pivotal moment for Danny. Not because she started a successful platform, but because the concept behind the app transformed how she perceived dating, and she could see that it could do the same for others. She knew that swiping through faces on a screen was a problematic system. It reduced the individual to a series of traits, and to Danny, it appeared to defeat the entire purpose of dating. That is, to explore a variety of people, overcome vulnerabilities, and have fun while you're doing it. By engaging with someone else through a lighthearted game, the pressure of the moment is diverted. Danny recognizes that most dating apps aren't fostering this kind of engagement. In fact, the sheer number of options actually seems to hinder it. I have a maybe I don't know, a thousand foot view of dating question that I will supplement with an anecdote. So I have a friend that has like a couple dates set up each week. I have also seen him swiping. He'll spend maybe a half second on each person. He has a very established idea of exactly what he wants out of a person. And I'm wondering if the optionality that we have from dating apps makes it harder to find a person to actually love because we are unwilling to accept flaws because of the wealth of possibilities out there. Yeah. So it's called the paradox of choice. So if you were given 12 flavors of jam for your toast versus someone else who's given four flavors, the person given four is going to choose a lot easier and be a lot happier. And the person given 12, they're going to have a lot harder time choosing. And ultimately, they're still going to feel like they made the wrong choice because there were too many. 
So there's been studies done on this and it's it usually something that would come up in, in a marketing book of some sort. But it definitely applies to dating because that is the problem that people are faced with is that they start a conversation, it might be going well, but you know that there's a hundred more people nearby that you could be talking to. And you always wonder, well, what if there's someone slightly better? And you end up optimizing based on things that don't matter as much. You see a flaw where you don't like, and you're like, oh, well, maybe there's someone who's who looks a little bit different. And it wouldn't matter if you were limited to kind of like your initial community or the people that you met at a, a bar on Friday night. But because there's so many people, you end up optimizing for something that ultimately doesn't matter. What do you want the future of dating to look like? And what role do you think EXO has in shaping that future? Dating apps have really gone through these different cycles. When dating websites started, it was Match.com and OkCupid. You filled out a huge questionnaire. You filled out a massive profile. Eight years later, Tinder came out. It was very simple. You just signed in with Facebook and you're good to go. Now it's been about eight years. So there's kind of these cycles that have happened. XO, I see building on top of, I think, kind of the innovation that's happened, but shifting us back into a different mindset. I think that the simplicity of Tinder really made it a very popular app and has made online the leading place that people meet each other now. But it's also sort of dehumanized us in terms of how we sort of treat dating as if we're shopping for a car. I think that has caused a lot of people to be really self-conscious about their appearance and sort of like erodes confidence in many ways because you do feel like you're sort of competing with everyone else. So I think what EXO has to offer is making the dating experience feel more like going to a party. So we actually have group experiences as well as the games that you know you and your friend could go on a double date. The two of you get matched with two other people. Your friend knows your humor, you feel comfortable around your friend. And so it's just a completely different experience where it's not like you match and then you're put into this empty white room and forced to have a conversation. It's something that there's stuff to do. It takes the pressure off. I hope that the next phase of dating will feel more um, creative, collaborative, playful. It sets the stage for, I think, a more playful relationship, which I think sets people up better long-term. As we passed our first Valentine's Day in the middle of a pandemic, I think many of us can agree that easygoing mingling with other people in public is deeply missed. But even before our lives shifted, Danny recognized the need for serious change when it came to how the 21st century dates. Like Danny said earlier, finding love shouldn't be like shopping for a car. It should be a chance to explore the complexities of others while developing a better understanding of yourself. The individual stories of Danny and Natalie are unique, but there are similarities. They both chose to refuse the call of conformity and search for the solution to the challenges they encountered in each of their lives. Every innovative approach to dating rejects the notion that it is solely about finding love. Instead, it promotes the perspective that there's so much other value that can be extracted from these experiences. But first, you have to be open to it. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. 
Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Joseph Cho, Matt Fernandez, Spencer Khan, Sophia Donner, Shannon O'Halloran, Jess DeSena, Sebastian Gazada, Samuel Stenica, and Maura Lynch. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Avnish Sengupta, Prerika Chavla, Mitchell Lynn, Lise Caldwell, Jessica Gung, Zachary Loudermilk Bhatia, Kylie McCreary, Lauren Pomerantz. Our outreach and research lead is Jessica Lynn with support from Sasha Ivanova, Marie Vaughn, Lisa Lett, Ankita Numbiar, Sarah Hobson, Gary Zane, and Melody Sopani. Our design and social media team lead is Ling Mu Hu, with support from Tiffany Day, Kayla Erickson, Shruti Ramanand, Carlo Durekava, and Alana Donnelly. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence, with support from Melanie Mack and Nina Maravich. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.